Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Thank you for joining us for today's SMIE Consulting Midweek Roundup. It's Wednesday, January 11th, 2023. And today we're going to be answering three questions we've been hearing from international educators over the last seven days. And as we do each week, we take our news stories from our newsletter that comes out on Mondays at 9 a.m. Eastern. Uh, for those that wish to subscribe, I'm dropping the link into the chat uh, along with the most recent edition of the newsletter so that you can get a, a gander on what uh, our stories are that we cover this week and how we get to the, the kinds of questions that we ask here on the Roundup on Wednesdays. So we provide this service free of charge to all that wish to su subscribe. And we do this both through an email version as well as through LinkedIn. Uh, we have our own newsletter there as well, basically the same thing that you could get via email. So I'll drop that if that's the way you prefer to digest your international ed news. We do the work for you. We, uh, we do our research on uh, top news stories in social media that are related to international education, as well as top international ed stories, not only in the United States, but around the world that impact what we do in international education. And like we do each week, uh, we take three themes that we see percolating through those news stories and come up with our questions that we answer here on the Roundup on Wednesday. We give you our hot takes on Monday on those different news stories, and then here we'll dive a little deeper and maybe flesh out some things that might be useful as you look to uh, put together or adapt uh, pieces of your international ed strategy uh, to respond to some of these changing, uh, changing needs in the marketplace. So uh, we want to give a special shout out to those who watch us live here on uh, our social media channels for SMIE Consulting. We, we go live at 1 p.m. Eastern every Wednesday. Uh, whether we're here in the United States or abroad at a conference, we try and do this every, every Wednesday, unless we're on a plane where we can't, can't do it at that time. So we appreciate those of you who watch live on Facebook, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And a special uh, thank you to those who download our podcast each week. Uh, we've broken uh, 2,200 downloads now, uh, have over 100 subscribers, so very pleased to have, have you as part of the international ed journey for um, our SMIE consulting organization. So thank you so much. And, and let's get right into our first question of the day, and that is, how have community colleges fared during the Great Resignation? There's been a lot said over the last three years about what's happened in higher education. Uh, we saw uh, 15, 16% of, of college and university workforces leave or be let go or put on furlough during the pandemic. Uh, we've seen some, uh, some institutions that uh, didn't have huge layoffs. Uh, that furloughed employees during the pandemic uh, that have now recently, in fact, the uh, institution that I work at currently, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, uh, they recently, for those that were employed throughout the pandemic uh, who were furloughed, they've uh, given them basically the equivalent of back pay for the time that they were off, off the clock, so to speak. So there's, uh, there, there's been a huge restructuring of institutions, uh, reorganizing how uh, we do what we do in higher ed, how we deliver courses, all of these things that we've talked about before here on the Roundup. But I, I want to pay particular attention to the community colleges today uh, simply, for, simply because they have, were already one of the, the areas, particularly as it relates to international education, that were struggling the most. Uh, we know for, facts, uh, for a fact that uh, several uh, folks who had international uh, job responsibilities 
uh, were either let go during the pandemic that were in community college uh, positions for international education. Uh, we know that uh, if that happened as much like it does in many other parts of community college life, you may have uh, those individuals who assume those responsibilities of international student recruitment or uh, international uh, being a DSO uh, at a community college or providing services for international students had that added to their plate. Uh, usually wasn't any new positions created uh, during the pandemic. And the reason why we cover this today is it, oftentimes our community college uh, brothers and sisters are, are, are kind of the last, uh, the last to benefit from any, any boom periods and often first to suffer whenever there's, uh, there's, uh, there's a downturn in any significant way. Uh, where where the, the one time where perhaps they, they saw, began to saw significant upticks uh, was in the last recession in uh, 2008 around um, around all the banking scandals and uh, and such uh, uh, stock market collapses and all of that. Uh, we saw folks who were leaving the job market who were going back in community, to community colleges to get retrained to do something else. And there, there, there are periods that they tend to benefit uh, from uh, that perhaps, uh, and larger, larger higher ed to a lesser extent. But what we're facing now in the pandemic, coming out of the pandemic, uh, there was an uh, interesting article I've put the link to in the chat uh, for on Facebook and YouTube, uh, but uh, you'll certainly get to that from the links uh, if you're on the if you're subscribed to the newsletter. It's a chronicle article that's open to uh, open to uh, to those that uh, who you don't need a subscription to to read this particular piece. Uh, th the data shows uh, from uh, EAB. Uh, that uh, community college leaders uh, have seen uh, the information services sector seen a steady increase in jobs uh, in that time period at community colleges, uh, climbing from 16% between January of 2020 and April 22. And that's, I guess, not a surprise. Uh, that's probably the one area uh, that uh, lost, uh, lost the one that community colleges did not lose in staff is in the IT area. So information services as, as everything went online that uh, that really has led to uh, that that's kind of the only bright light uh, where overall the trends and the graph that's on this uh, attached to this article here for community college staffing lags uh, is the title or the, the tag for the for the graph you see very distinct drop-offs between uh, January of 2020 uh, and January of 22. Uh, short, shortly, that's where things, in the, in the fall of 21 and early January 22, that's when things kind of bottomed out, uh, where they were seeing drops of 15, 16% across the board at community colleges. So you see, and we know, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we know when it comes to international ed, oftentimes, I, uh, those of you, my colleagues who are working in community colleges, I, I know your struggles in terms of the number of hats that you wear. Uh, you're underpaid. You're overworked. Uh, you have uh, international, perhaps, if you're lucky, you have international as your only responsibility. But oftentimes, yeah, I know you have other, other responsibilities on campus uh, that might be in completely unrelated areas. Uh, but so that can be a real challenge in terms of uh, where um, where you are and, and in terms of your ability to function appropriately. Uh, some of you left community college world because there were jobs opening up when higher ed started rebounding uh, in 20, uh, mid-21. Mid, mid 
uh, into the spring of 22. Uh, you saw a huge, a huge rebounds on the higher ed side, but that's also at the time in the spring of 21 where there was a huge drop off uh, from April to Jan April 21 to January 22. Uh, you were going from slightly above, maybe regaining some ground on the job losses uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, but then you really tanked uh, in uh, throughout the back half of 21 into early 22. Uh, and only are just now starting to make a, a, an upward trend again. So uh, for me, uh, I know uh, I know community colleges uh, oftentimes are uh, are portrayed as the um, as the, the better uh, not better, but as, uh, it depends on the on the individual who's, uh, who's uh, viewing them. But certainly, community colleges can be a very uh, appropriate and worthwhile path for international students who for whom. Finances are of uh, particular concern where they don't have the, the wealth to throw out $50,000 per year on, a, on an education, on tuition alone in some cases, uh, but or those that don't know exactly what they want yet and want to have a, a year or two to play around with different, different kinds of programs that they've uh, had interest in, uh, but don't know exactly whether or not that's going to be the right one for them and they want to have that college experience and not have to pay top dollar for, for that. So it's really, it's really um, uh, community colleges have always had a valid pathway for international students. They haven't always gotten the love from uh, consular officers overseas in terms of visa uh, processing and uh, their willingness to grant visas for community colleges, despite all the work that those community college uh, representatives have done to convince uh, students in some countries where community colleges are certainly not a thing. Uh, in terms of a known quantity and certainly not uh, a ready-made and understood path to higher education, uh, to a degree in higher education in their countries. But community college worker, uh, international folks work so hard in terms of making that push and convincing leadership um, uh, uh, at schools, uh, parents of students that might be interested and students themselves who might need some encouragement to uh, have opportunities for the beginning of an undergraduate education that won't cost an arm and a leg necessarily, uh, but will provide them options and a pathway, a clear pathway to finishing a four-year degree. And that's something that that work that's done when it's not recognized by consular officers who, who do not add embassies and consulates around the world as a valid pathway to a bachelor's degree program in the United States, uh, they're really doing a disservice to community colleges in the United States who have worked so hard to get to that point and already have those kind of obstacles built up in terms of being able to explain what a community college is, convince a parent and a student that that's the right, the right way and that there is a clear path to success. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, she's uh, talked about uh, actively how uh, students that have come to her, oh, she, she uh, talks about the example of a student that uh, did, a, did an associates with them, went on to uh, a, a four-year state university to finish a bachelor's degree, and is now doing, uh, doing another degree in Canada, uh, an advanced degree in Canada. So that's, that's a clear pathway to, to a successful future, and community colleges can and do that and have done that for decades uh, for international students. And the impact of the, of the pandemic on these community colleges during the Great Resignation has been more significant. Uh, they felt it 10, 15 times as hard as we have uh, on the university side. 
just because of the resource constraints that they have, uh, have always had. Uh, there aren't suddenly fresh budgets that are f suddenly funding dozens of positions on, on these uh, colleges, college, community college campuses, but yet the expectations are you still got to bring in the students. Uh, those that have stuck through it, I know the, hard, the work has been hard. You've worked above, uh, above and beyond in terms of what's, what's required uh, to do your jobs and to bring in students even throughout this, coming out of the pandemic now. Uh, we, we're seeing your success. Uh, we're there for you, and uh, we wish you nothing but the best and uh, know that we support you in what you do. Uh, and George, thanks for getting on. And uh, yes, let's definitely uh, connect about some international discussions on these kinds of topics and more. Look forward to those conversations. Thanks for being a part of uh, the Roundup today. So let's move on to our second topic of the day. And this one is fresh on the minds of all international uh, admissions folks around the, around the country, uh, around the world, who are anxiously awaiting Chinese students to start flooding back to their countries. Uh, now that uh, the borders are fully open and that there are no quarantine restrictions and passports are, are, are beginning to be reissued again by uh, Chinese National Passport Control. So January 8th, this past Monday or Sunday, was the beginning of this, this new open China uh, in terms of their post, what they can, well, uh, what they consider their post-pandemic uh, restrictions being lifted. So, uh, what uh, now that these now that the borders are open, uh, where will these students be going? Uh, there's a lot of talk uh, in the industry about uh, what's um, what 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 what's going to be expected uh, down the road uh, in the coming months. Uh, we've had uh, we've had uh, surveys done, and we'll share some of the results of those uh, through some of the articles we'll be putting in the chat. But I wanted to first uh, highlight uh, a webinar coming up on Wednesday. Uh, this coming week, a uh, week from today. Uh, it's at uh, 5.30 a.m. Eastern, so early for my U.S. colleagues, uh, really late for on the West Coast. But it's uh, what is on the mind of Chinese students, how to, how to use digital to engage them. Uh, it's being put on by uh, the PIES doing the webinar and uh, sponsored by also by, by Sonorbus, Lancaster University in the U.K. and British Council. So U.K. folks are primarily Running this, Sinorbis, who, if you're not familiar, is uh, Australia-based. Uh, they've been operating in China for several years as an online digital platform to provide universities access to uh, the Chinese uh, student market directly behind the Great Firewall. So uh, that is a webinar I'm signed up for. I certainly encourage you uh, to do the same. Uh, if you can register, you'll get the recording so you don't have to get up uh, super early to, to watch it live at 5.30 on the East Coast. 2:30 a.m. on the West Coast. Uh, so what? Uh, what? And that's cer certainly that on the ground kind of knowledge uh, in terms of what's what's happening with uh, Chinese students now. What are the what are they what are, what are they uh, seeing on the ground that will help help us uh, get a better sense of what's next. Uh, we also have a story, another pie story coming out uh, related to uh, what Chinese agents. Uh, are, are particularly concerned about uh, that they feel are going to be the top deciding factors for where students will go, uh, and that's uh, that's going to be a useful uh, useful uh, resource to check out as well. And that's uh, that uh, that rating is is, is actually from 
uh, Navitas Agents Perception Survey, 880 agents across 68 countries. So it's not just China. Uh, it also includes uh, agents around the world, 68 countries, obviously. But uh, for China, in ra rankings in greater, Ch greater China, agent uh, was the top factor that was going to decide uh, where students go, in their opinion, the, the agents that were surveyed here. Uh, that And that has grown significantly from... 68% uh, of agents uh, in May in China said it uh, would be a rankings were a top factor. Uh, it's now grown to 80% by October uh, in this most recent survey. So now that the borders are open, our rankings still going to drive a, a Chinese student interest uh, primarily to rank schools. Uh, what, uh, what, what, what is the feeling? According to the agents, rankings is going to be a, a significant driver coming out. Uh, we also have uh, we have just also getting some uh, some feedback on uh, from different different sources inside and outside of China that know the market well about the the COVID testing uh, requirement that's going to be that has been, has been put in place for those Chinese citizens that might be traveling to the U.S., U.K., Australia. Uh, not New Zealand, uh, however, uh, in terms of COVID testings before they uh, they travel to uh, to their to their destination of choice for study. Uh, so that is something that uh, I think, and, and you've seen the Chinese government say that this is discriminatory and all that. To be honest with you, the, the culture has been they're just blowing wind, hot air, as far as I'm concerned. For the Chinese culture has been multiple testings per week to get before they get on a plane uh, to come to travel to have that be a concern. Uh, it's very insignificant in the bigger picture. Uh, they're used to having to be tested regularly and to do that before they get on a plane is, is not going to be a deal breaker for, for folks uh, in terms of them being able to travel. Uh, what I would say uh, is, is going to be an issue uh, that these testing rules uh, we see, and you think about it, that you have, if to go into China, even though there's not a quarantine, you, you do still need to get test, have a negative test before you, get, you go to China. So uh, it's kind of pot calling the kettle black at that point. Uh, what, uh, what, what we are seeing on the ground in China is a lot of, um, a lot of confusion, frankly. We know what's, uh, what's happened since in December, uh, the government uh, pulled back on their, on their COVID restrictions internally within the country. Uh, they allowed greater range of travel. This has also coincided with huge explosion of uh, COVID cases where there, uh, in one province, there was even a report that 89% of the province's population had gotten COVID. 89% in one province that has 100 million people. Uh, 89 million people had COVID uh, in Henan province. So that's that's kind of scary for us, you know, when you think about why that's happening. When you suddenly go from three years of lockdown to uh, in various stages to uh, to uh, not unfettered, they don't have unfettered freedom of uh, of travel in China, but uh, unfettered movement and le less restrictions, and all of a sudden these explosion of cases are are clogging hospitals, much like we had in the U.S. in the early days of the pandemic in 2020. Um, we're now seeing those stories play out again in China, um, and perhaps on a much greater scale than we ever had here uh, in terms of uh, the impact it's going to have on, on their population, particularly the elderly that were the most resistant to the, getting the vaccines in the first place. And even those that did, did get the vaccines, they're, they're less effective in terms of preventing uh, significant uh, symptoms of, uh, and effects of COVID, uh, 50%. The, the government, Chinese government, did not let in Western uh, vaccines uh, for its citizens. They only relied on their own. 
Sinopharm and Sinovac. So, and maybe a couple others that popped up later. But certainly the efficacy of those has, has caused, 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 caused some real struggles. One of those is uh, for, uh, uh, in, in terms of uh, changes in regulations and restrictions of what you could and couldn't do, uh, for uh, Chinese university students that were uh, undergraduate students that were looking to take the graduate school entrance exams, uh, there, there was a report out uh, that uh, there were in, I think, over, let me, forget, let me get the total numbers here. Um, there were t t approximately 4.57 million persons officially registered uh, for the postgraduate test uh, that was uh, happening uh, December 24th to December 26th, uh, that there was a high no-show rates, uh, that some are close to a third of the individuals who registered, uh, about 1.6 million based on the stats that have been compiled, 1.6 million of those 4.57 million uh, students that were going to take the postgraduate entrance exam didn't show for the test because of, of confusion related to, uh, to, the exam, to the exams and what was allowed in post-COVID China, which is hard, hard, to, hard to say that with a straight face at this point. But um, in terms of, uh, there's a lot of confusion, obviously, on the ground, as we're, as we're, as we're outlining here. But we're also dealing with a country that um, uh, the, the pressure, uh, now that the borders are open, there still aren't the flights that were in, in, uh, in and out of China that existed pre-pandemic. -pre and that's going to be the biggest, probably, bottleneck for, for students that are hoping to travel abroad and uh, get to the United States to finish to start start their studies uh, or resume their studies if they've been out of the country for a while. We talked last week about the problem with, for U.S. bound students. The embassies and consulates have stopped uh, non-immigrant visa services. So for new students, they probably aren't going to get here for spring and are going to have to defer again until fall if they, had, have been, if they hadn't already deferred. So we're, we're experiencing a lot of, a lot of stop and starts here with this uh, with re-engaging with China uh, in significant numbers. And I think that there's still, uh, it's probably going to be fall 23 before we'll see uh, anywhere close to uh, a re return to pre-pandemic numbers. Uh, and even th those numbers were, had been declining over the pre previous three or four years. So th it's, it's a big uphill climb for, for Chinese students in terms of getting back in uh, expectations uh, for us uh, certainly in the U.S. Certainly, my, I've ha heard from several colleagues in uh, in Australia that f expect Chinese numbers to bounce back significantly in the next year or so. Uh, I think that uh, that might be might happen. Uh, the certainly the agent surveys uh, that we talked about last week um, share, shared that the Australia has certainly certainly rebounding significantly in terms of a preferred destination. Uh, whether that's all of that uh, turns into actual students. I think they'll they'll, they'll see increases. They, they can't get any worse than the, where they were pre during the pandemic. But uh, certainly, the the sticking point has been with China uh, up until now. Uh, up, I think it was up to a third of their Chinese students uh, were still in China uh, doing remote courses because they couldn't get in country. So now that the borders are open, as soon as flights resume, it's in significant numbers to and from um, major Western destina destinations. Uh, I think there's the, 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 uh, until that happens, it's probably going to be late spring, our spring, uh, their fall, uh, when, when their school year starts uh, in the coming month or two, uh, that they're going to be uh, expecting 
a larger volume. So uh, hopefully for their benefit, I hope they they do uh, do see that resumption in, in Chinese students. But one place where they're not going is to is back in significant numbers is Canada. Uh, article that I've just dropped in uh, to the chat is uh, from Eridera uh, that uh, that routinely does uh, profiles on different destination markets and source markets and how they how they connect. Uh, where we look at uh, Chinese uh, applicants for study permits in Canada, those numbers have uh, dropped significantly. Uh, they were at um, 90,000 uh, Chinese uh, study permits in 2018 to less than 52,000 uh, for 2022. So uh, significant drops there, 38% uh, or so. But Canada has seen increases overall, and that, so the drop in the Chinese students that they've experienced in Canada has been masked by uh, significant jumps, particularly from India, that they've experienced uh, even during the pandemic. So it, it'll be interesting to see whether Canada can regain any of its uh, lost market share from from China going to uh, north of the border to Canada. So we'll keep our eyes on that as their uh, their numbers come in for the for the next few months. But we, what, we, what we're seeing with China right now is a lot of uncertainty uh, on the part of U.S.-bound students from China because of the embassy issues and the closure there. Uh, whenever that gets reopened, it's, it's kind of hard to say until things settle down on the COVID front. And that's, uh, that's the technical disadvantage of um, U.S.-bound uh, uh, students from China is that we require, unless, they've, unless they fall into the interview waiver uh, uh, exemption that has been grant or has been granted through the end of December 23 for those that had previous US visas if they need a visa a first time visa they have to go for an in person interview we're the only major western country that requires it so that's why the UK uh, saw jumps in their uh, Chinese student uh, visas app visa applicants and students actually getting to the UK is because they um, they don't require that in-person interview. They have a visa paper uh, private uh, visa processing services that uh, that students apply through, and that there are security checks that are, are government regulated and all that. But they don't require the interview. Uh, Canada doesn't require an interview. Australia doesn't require an interview. So there's uh, the process is a lot s uh, simpler. Uh, so I, I say to my colleagues who don't who are just trying to understand more of what's happening in the wider world. Well, that's one of the reasons we um, we 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 are we fall down uh, quite a bit uh, in terms of uh, the processing delays that we face to, for U.S. bound students are happen as a, because of the, that in-person requirement because there aren't physically enough appointments in the day for everybody who wants to come from India to go for their U.S. student visa interview. Uh, because the, they have, that's, re, that's a requirement unless they have the previous U.S. visa in the last five years. So uh, will we see any changes to that, the in-person requirement? The only thing that light of, light of the end of that tunnel is if they extend and make, or make permanent if you've had a U.S. visa in the last five years and they make that visa in-person visa requirement, if they waive that, like they have during the last couple of years of the pandemic and into the end of 23, if they make that permanent, then that's one avenue. But it's still the in-person requirement just is uh, a real, real roadblock because um, the security checks really happen in the background anyway. Uh, there isn't uh, there isn't a whole lot you can learn. Uh, visa visa consular officers probably will tell you differently, but. Uh, uh, 
in terms of what you you learn from actually meeting that person uh, that isn't that you're not seeing on paper. Uh, some some there'll be some benefit in there, I'm sure, but when it's cl- a clear hindrance to uh, to success in terms of visas uh, processing, uh, it's a uh, it's, it's something that needs addressing in the longer term. Uh, are there other ways to do interviews that don't have to be require in person? Or a five-minute interview can be done uh, on Skype or on other some other other sort of service. So there's a there's a lot that uh, lot that we need can talk about there. But uh, hopefully we'll see rebounds coming from China in in the next semester. Certainly fall fall term is probably the most likely where we'll see some significant jumps. And uh, for those um, who are curious about uh, China and uh, and the United States. I think there's other articles we shared in the newsletter about what's the future for U.S.-China relations. Uh, much like we saw during the Cold War uh, uh, with Russia, there was there was student exchange going on throughout that. I think we're going to get to a point with China where uh, the student exchange will continue, uh, and I think we'll get back to a more normal uh, state. Uh, it's not going to be the volume that we had in the mid-90s to early teens, but I, I certainly think that there's um, there's still a lot to be learned uh, from cooperating with China uh, on, on academic pro- pro- projects, on student exchange. There's just so much value in that person-to-person diplomacy. So I still think there's going to be huge opportunities for the United States in this regard. Now, the final question of the day. Uh, the second largest country, or largest, depending on whose, whose population numbers you look at these days, is India. Uh, is it poised to boom uh, not just with outbound students, but with inbound students too. And there are a couple of interesting articles that came out this week uh, that I want to share with you today. Uh, one of which, uh, both are from the Free Press Journal. <coughs> Excuse me, big frog. <coughs> First one is bigger countries to challenge the U.S.-U.K. dominance among Indian students in 2023. And this one is uh, sharing uh, a report that uh, that right now there are a, pro- a little over 600,000 uh, Indian students studying outside of uh, India for higher education. Uh, they, there's a recent report from Red Seer which estimates that in the next two years, or less than two years now, by 2024, even into early next year, end of 2024, there could be 1.8 million Indians studying abroad. And that just seems like a phenomenal increase in such a short span of time. And you wonder, is that is that real? Could that possibly be? And if it is, it certainly would be explained with the interest that I think we've seen in the United States explode from Indian sources, uh, Indian students uh, over the last uh, two to three years. Uh, and the U.S. consulates and embassies in India have been struggling to keep up and in the past year had a record number of uh, visas issued to, to try and meet that demand. But then that's still not enough. Uh, by the end of, the tw- of 2023, hopefully by the fall, uh, summer, summer 23. Uh, the new embassy, our new consulate in Hyderabad, the world's largest uh, U.S. consulate, will be open and be able to funnel through uh, many more students than they have been able to recently. Uh, so that's uh, there's huge, just un, un, almost unlimited demand right now uh, in India for overseas education. Now, not all of that 1.8 million, which would be 
tripling what they have going abroad right now from the country, not just to the U.S., but globally. Uh, not all of that's coming to the U.S. Uh, this, the article points out specifically that uh, Germany and France have been some of the bigger uh, recipients of increases of Indian students outbound uh, from the la- in the last couple, three years. Uh, Germany primarily because it's free. Uh, France to a lesser extent, but still they've been reaping the rewards of uh, some investment in India. The other side of the coin here uh, on this question uh, is, uh, is India poised to become a huge destination market for international students? And part of that is driven by uh, the UGC in India uh, sharing the recent guidance on uh, university, uh, what, what, what the criteria will be for uh, universities that wish to set up their own campuses in India. Uh, China's had it for a while. Other countries have been inviting foreign universities in for a number of years, but now India—it's uh, a lot. It's a hugely bureaucratic country, uh, hugely diverse, de- decentralized country in a lot of ways. But the NEP, natural, National Education Policy, that was introduced a couple of years ago, some of the fruits of that, in terms of promising a more a more open India for. Uh, international education to for inbound international education to the country for allowance of overseas campuses of uh, foreign institutions uh, that those criteria are now being finalized just saw something this morning about what those criteria are they're looking for uh, those institutions they are they will put rankings on institutions that they will allow in to set up shop uh, that you have to have been in the world top 500 they don't specify which scale which rankings but again, it elevates the question of rankings that are going to be a deter- predetermining factor for who they'll allow in to open up a campus. Uh, we don't know all the scale. They're, they say that they have interest from 49 universities across six or seven, eight countries that want to set up shop in India as a way to offer their, degree, their degrees from their own country in India, but also to allow others from the region who might want to come to India perhaps for the, the student experience, the cultural experience, lower cost experience, to um, have the benefit of uh, getting that degree from an overseas university in India. So uh, that kind of TNE is going to be uh, exploding in India in the next, uh, if, the, if the UGC is to be believed, it's going to be exploding in India in the next uh, next three to five years. And we'll see if 40, they say 49 universities are going to set up shop in India in, in this year. I'll believe it when I see it, but that's, um, that's, that's a huge opportunity uh, for, for institutions that have the the guts to do it. Uh, it's going to be a huge capital expense uh, to open a shop in, in India. If you're whether it's full degrees or only individual degrees, I think one of the, for an institution like like my like mine at UNLV, uh, if that one of the caveats top 500. If you're not in the top 500, what do you do? Uh, if you're top 500 in a particular program, you potentially could. Potentially, if I'm reading the reading these requirements right, you could potentially be setting up shop in India. So there's a huge opportunity in India, both inbound and outbound, uh, for 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 students, uh, for institutions, and I think that's only going to grow um, as the as the, as the dust settles from these new regulations, and we have a better idea of what to expect. But uh, that's all we have for you this week on the roundup. Do appreciate you sticking with us, and uh, we hope that uh, we'll be chatting with you in person or at events in the next few months. So until next time, have a great day.